Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor Josh Gad. Josh Gad was drawn to acting ever since he took the stage as the Simca machine in Beth Shalom Academy's kindergarten play. On stage, Josh felt euphoria, but at home, he struggled with his parents' divorce. Luckily, he found an escape through watching and performing in theater. Josh vividly remembers the first time he saw a professional play while sitting in the nosebleeds and watching breathlessly. As he tells it, what finally took me over the edge was going to New York City and seeing Topol in Fiddler on the Roof. I was sold. I've got to do this. In addition to his dream of performing, Josh had an innate talent for making people laugh. Humor was how he eased his mother's pain after divorce, and it also helped him diffuse social tension. Josh explains, One time a kid called me fat in front of a group of people, and instead of kowtowing, I started reciting a monologue from my cousin Vinny, to the point where the guy was like, What is happening right now? Everybody was laughing at him, and I turned it into an opportunity to take the weapon out of his hands and make it my own. For college, Josh went to conservatory at Carnegie Mellon, but getting work after graduation wasn't easy. The cycle of auditioning and rejection was depressing, especially when his agents sent him on auditions against the likes of Nick Lachey. Josh says, had my agents ever seen my headshot? After a couple of years, he almost quit, but he finally got his big break as the lead in the Broadway show, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. In the years since, Josh has done work in a wide range of projects on stage and on screen, including The Daily Show, The Book of Mormon, The Comedians, and of course as Olaf in Frozen and Frozen 2. Josh joins off-camera to talk about the way voice acting taps into his childhood, about the worst night he's ever had on stage, and about missing his calling as an opera singer. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Josh. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. It's my pleasure. I'm such a big fan, and I'm so excited to be here today. Well, I've wanted to have you on for a long time. Ever since, I mean, gosh, there's so many projects. Obviously, Frozen is a big deal because I have two daughters who, they were six and seven when the first one came out. So our house turned into a Frozen, you know, sanctuary. And it's your fault that those songs are forever stuck in my head. I take, I take full responsibility. We have videos, full-on right. videos of the entire Frozen movie of them doing it. I mean, it's crazy. That's called pirating, and well, I'm going to report it is. you. I actually, I also have two daughters, so I experienced it. And it's amazing to see how it affects sisters, right? How sisters perceive that movie, and it totally. speaks to them in a way that I think is so uniquely different than Well, and I have else. a redhead as one of them. So uh, the only difference between you and I in our experiences of that is I was not one of the main characters in the movie. Yet. Well, I tried to sell that for a while. Well, who did you claim to be? Olaf. Let's hear your Olaf. I want to hear it. In summer! <laughs> okay, that's, that just sounds like an angry rabbi. No, I thought that was pretty good. Just really doesn't like Give weather changes. Give me your changes. best in summer. In summer! All right, fine. But that's I get, why yeah. I didn't believe it either. <laughs> no, but let me ask you a question. Anything. Why do you think your voice translates so well to an animated character? Because I do think even talking to you now that there's a certain joy and an innocence. And I wonder if you ever thought about that. Like, <sighs> is it acting? Is it a combination of... of it's, fu- it's so funny because... Throughout college, and I went to conservatory and, and, and you know, just growing up, I've always hated my voice. I really? feel like my voice is so high. Anytime someone does an impersonation of me, it sounds like they're doing Kermit the fucking Frog on helium. And I'm like, God, that's how people hear me. And so I don't, I'm the worst person to ask about why my voice is effective because I, I want to trade it in for Ian McKellen's voice. If I, if I could walk around and talk like this all the time, I feel like people would look at me differently. They would respect me. They'd honor yeah, and me. yet, and yet, here, maybe, and yet, I got this. Right. But you know what I think? What I think works so nicely for Olaf is because of my register and because of the way my my pitch kind of sits in that very strange spot. It does add to that sense of wonderment. Right, that sense of naivete that yeah. Olaf needs that imbues that character 
on the page and then on the screen. And, and when we started playing around, the very first scene that we ever played with was that, that introduction to Olaf in, in the first movie. And that entire scene, uh, as it was recorded on that first day, is what you see in the movie. And it was very interesting because that was supposed to be like a, a test ground. That was right. And it was sort of like this thing where it started kind of in my register and then we went higher and then we went, you know, lower. And then it sort of found that sweet spot like right here. And it had this sense of like, oh, my goodness, like the world is so big and the world is. And then once we hit into that and it was I think that key word was childlike wonderment. Yeah. And it was just one of those things. It's like, ah, that's what it wants to be. You know, I remember the first time I heard my voice. Uh, when one of the kids on the block got a tape recorder and we made a fake radio show and we listened back to it and I thought I was pretty cool and then I heard my voice and I felt like such, like like you did, like a small insignificant kid with a high voice that hadn't changed. And I do think that that's an interesting concept to think about how we take things that maybe cause us shame as children and then discover how they're... Jesus, I didn't say I was ashamed by my voice. I was like getting so dark. You know, tell us, when did you first realize you were suicidal? The, right. the first time you heard your own voice come out of your mouth. Were you a child? Um, I, I definitely have come to terms with the strangeness of my voice. I, 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 lo- I would love to... I would love at some point if my voice just kind of went down one register, I'd be very satisfied. After Frozen 4. After Frozen 4. <laughs> but I do feel like whether it's Olaf or whether it's Arnold Cunningham in Book of Mormon, it's that, that, that strange sort of affectation that my voice has, has definitely been a key part of the things that have translated really well that I've been a part of. Yeah. It, is voice acting easy money or is it every bit as hard as live action acting in terms of the work you have to do? Right. It's easy money. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. Um, what, I, what I do think it is, is it's an incredible opportunity to tap into your imagination in a way that, in a way that I only really experienced as a kid playing with toys. I would get these toys like the Star Wars toys, and right. I would bring them to life, and I would, and I would imagine all of these things. Would and you I'd do the voices? Like, for I would do them? all the voices. Cobra Commander coming out of it. All of them. Skeletor. Like every <laughs> single thing that I was playing with, I would bring to life. And that sense of non-judgmental playfulness as a child, which I now see in my own daughters, is something that really like sadly goes away, right? Like yes, around like it does. 13. And that that sort of thing that you lose as a kid. Suddenly, when you're in a recording studio, you tap right back into that. And it's like being a kid again. It's just so fun. I remember I remember '93 going to the movies and seeing Robin Williams as the genie in Aladdin and being right. like, oh, that's I want to do that one day. And and the reason I think it was so effective and so iconic to this day is because it really allowed us to see the true brilliance and the true absolute force of nature that was Robin. And I think that animation really affords us that opportunity as performers is you don't have these tools, you don't have your hands, you don't have your body, you you don't have your face, you don't have any sort of um, emotional relay other than the timber of your voice. So that forces you to really be imaginative. And in that sense, it's, it's, really, it's really cool. Well, it makes me wonder, when you describe that situation with Aladdin, uh, were you singing and did you love to sing when you were a little kid? Yeah. Really? Yeah. When did I, you discover you could sing? I was in... Uh, I was in a show at my elementary school, Beth Shalom Academy, 
which is clearly a Catholic school. Um, <laughs> and uh, I remember, uh, true story, the rabbi embezzled money from that school. And uh, I, I was forced to leave that school when I was in third grade. But the so first- So it's not only the Catholics that no, take advantage of No, it's not, no, them. absolutely not. And, and uh, Rabbi Malofsky, I mean, it almost has like a sinister quality to the name. And, but I remember the first show that I did was- He's um, watching right now from prison. He is, this is like his favorite show. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Josh is on the, I remember what I did to his class. Mm. <laughs> but it, it, I remember I was in a show in kindergarten and I played a character called the Simcha Machine, <laughs> and it was just c- could not get any more Jewish. And I remember the first song I sang was this song that went a little something like this. <laughs> it's insane. I'm the Simcha Machine. I run loose in the city, and nothing can stop me. My songs are so witty. <laughs> and I just remember, even at the time, being like, this is the stupidest thing anyone's ever had to sing in their lives. But from that age on, I, I really loved singing. I loved the, the feeling, the, the sense of euphoria I got from being able to go out on a stage and, and sing a song. And was it, did, were you aware that you had a, an ability? Like, did you look at the other kids? Like, I, I, I was, I, I knew I could carry a tune. What was really interesting is that I went to a singing teacher by the name of Gene Putnam and Gene Putnam heard me sing and was like, I'm gonna make you an opera singer. And she had this vision. So like at like seven years old, I was learning Italian arias. Really? And like, yeah. And it's why my voice is sort of like this weird shit show of, <laughs> of like operatic and nasal and just a crazy fusion of all these things because I was like, it was these forces of nature at work. Did you want to be an opera singer? No, fuck no. (laughs) No, I actually went to school with Josh Groban. You did? Yes, and I've always threatened him that I'm coming after him. Wait, you went to elementary school with him? No, Uh, I went to Carnegie Mellon College. I was going to say, why didn't he sing the... uh the Simca witty, machine. the, the yeah. machine. No, so. he's not Jewish enough. <laughs> um, but, but yeah. So I, I trained singing like Conte, Partiro. Like those are the kinds of songs that I would sing as a kid. Right, right. But I loved. My dream was always to be on Broadway. Like that was what it I was. really wanted to. Oh yeah. It started at an early age. The sort of cliche story. My parents got divorced. Wanted to. How old were you when your parents got divorced? It's none of your fucking business. <laughs> uh, I uh, I was six. I was oh. six, and and it left a big impression on me. It did. Uh, yes, yeah, I guess as it always does, especially yeah. at such a young age. And I'm like my my objective was to just make my mom laugh and to just like ease her pain. So you felt you felt like I you felt, had to caretake your I mom. Fe- a little I bit. did. I felt like that. Like. I felt the burden on my shoulders that like I saw she was really sad and really unhappy. But I remember uh, like feeling like, okay, I have this gift to make people laugh. I'm gonna, I, I should use this to like ease her pain. And my mom, conversely, one of the ways that she tried to diffuse my pain um, <laughs> is turning into a Barbara Walters special and I don't like it. <laughs> um, she would take me to see theater. And I remember the first like five shows I ever saw. So the first show that I can remember seeing was Kathy Rigby and Peter Pan. And, uh, Wasn't she an ice skater? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then it was like Sandy Duncan and Kathy Rigby. And I remember being like, oh my God. And then I saw um, the first national tour of Phantom of the Opera at the Broward Center for Performing Arts. And I remember the chandelier, like that whole effect, even as a little kid, we were sitting in like the nosebleeds. And I just remember like, <gasps> and then the the real one that, that kind of took me over the edge was we were in, I went to New York City and I saw a Topol in Fiddler on the Roof. Oh yeah. And I was like, sold, sold. I, I, 
I gotta do this. So were you single-minded? Yeah. You I was, were. You, I, you just knew what you wanted to do. I knew to what I wanted to do, and I also knew I wasn't very good at much else, and, and so I did, wasn't left with much of an alternative. My math teachers would call my mother up and be like, your son's an idiot. Your son <laughs> is a, just a shithead. He has a shithead brain. Really? Um, they, well, not in those words, because they probably, my mom would have had a lawsuit, but they, they pretty much, <laughs> I was never good at math. But it's it's very interesting to me how like the school system basically forces every child to be on the same level as every other child, right? Right. It doesn't really promote like a kid like me who knows he wants to be an artist. It's more of like the 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 focus has to be on these linear yeah. things. And that was hard because I did struggle with school. And then I was just going through divorce and everything else. I was just a terrible student. But my mom, again, knew that I had this thing that I loved. And so she put me in like a, a children's theater called the Hollywood Playhouse. So it was definitely something where I, I put all my cards uh, on, on the yeah, table. And yeah, yeah. Like, this is it. Hey folks, let's take a break from the conversation to hear about this week's sponsor, Warby Parker. Warby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal to create boutique quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. Let me just say this about Warby Parker. They have the entire eyeglass thing figured out. No longer do you need to go into a store and try on eyeglasses and then wait for your prescription lenses to be fitted and stand there looking in those little mirrors to see if the glasses work on your face. Now you can do everything from home. You can take the Warby Parker quiz. You just answer a few quick questions and they'll suggest some great looking glasses that are totally personalized to fit your face and style. And if you have an iPhone X, you can download Warby Parker's app and you can use their brand new virtual try-on, allowing you to try on the eyeglasses. You can see the realistic color, texture, and size of each style using just your phone. Now I tried this and it's amazing. It's like you're looking at video of yourself with glasses on and you can try on every pair of glasses they make until you find the one that fits your face perfectly. Glasses start at only $95, including prescription lenses. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. And blue light filtering lenses are also now available. They also have sunglasses also starting at $95, including polarized lenses. And also, for every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need. So, you've got to try this app, and you have to try their free home try-on program. This is amazing. You can order five pairs of glasses, and you can try them on for five days. There's no obligation to buy. They just show up, and they include a prepaid return shipping label. So just head to warbyparker.com slash off-camera to order your free home try-on, and you can take the quiz to find a pair that's perfect for you today. That's warbyparker.com slash off-camera. And now back to the show. You know, I want to ask you, I was looking at your social media, and Uh-oh. you are a big champion for anti-bullying. You know, you repost videos of kids who are in situations where bullies have been called out, and, and there's a lot of compassion coming from you from that situation. And I'm assuming, seeing all of the ways that you're sort of tuned into that, yeah. that situation, that you probably had a pretty tough time in school yourself. You know what's interesting? What's that? I didn't. You didn't? I didn't. I realized early on I was the absolute poster boy for bullying because I was I struggled with, you know, being overweight from a very early age. But I also discovered that comedy uh, was a weapon that I was able to employ. How did you discover that? Like, what's an early example? You know, an early example is, is I remember one time a kid calling me fat in front of like a group of people. And instead of like kowtowing and, and giving him like the opportunity to sort of, you know, leave, I started reciting that monologue from my cousin Vinny where he walks into the bar and he sees the guy in the uh, arm sling. And I just like literally started reciting it to the point that the guy's like, what the fuck is happening right now? And everybody was laughing at him. And I remember turning it 
into an opportunity to take the weapon out of his hands and make it my own. Really? And I became very popular in school because of my comedy and I was class president and, I, and, and so people wouldn't fuck with me because they knew, and I was blessed in this sense that I had, not everybody does, but I had enough, I had enough opportunities to um, call upon uh, my own sense of, um, of, of you know, comedy to, to basically call them out on their shit. And where I get beyond angry is when I see people picking on people who are in a situation where they don't have a choice. When you feel the need to bully a child who is autistic and half deaf, fuck you. Like, fuck you. You are their loser. So I hate seeing it, and I think a lot of that is parenting, and you know, if my child ever does anything like that, that's it. Like, we lay down the law in my house. But like, where I really have no tolerance is when I see people who are grown adults, you know, doing it. That's when sure. I lose my cool. Well, I think, uh, you know, I, th I do think that you having the brain that could use comedy as a weapon and, and weaponize that, that skill at improv early, it is probably a fairly rare thing. A hundred percent. I was blessed to have that at my disposal. But there have been instances where I've watched my own kid get bullied. And it's painful. It's really painful. And you, it's, it's an honest conversation that you have to have, especially if you're a father or a mother, where you sit down and, and you, you, you let them know that it's on the other person, which isn't just, it's not just words, right? It really is the truth. It's like if somebody feels the need to come up to you and call you weird or call you whatever name, it's because they, they don't like themselves. Your mom must have done a great job. She still does, she's incredible. She was just such a great role model. And she was so unbelievably good at listening, right? At hearing. And I think that, like, that is, I think, the most valuable asset as a parent is listen. So you mentioned Fitter on the Roof earlier, and I watched a couple videos of you from high school. A lot of people don't know you're a two-time <laughs> two NFL champion. Three-time. Three-time. Yeah, three-time. Okay, well. Not for, that anyone's keeping count. But for people who don't know, the, there's the this. The NFL is a National Football League. I was a star <laughs> linebacker. No, it's this oratory competition that's national. What does NFL stand for in that so world? So the NFL is the National Forensics League, and it's, it's basically speech and debate, right? right so, right. like, there are different categories that you can compete in. There's original oratory in which you write a dissertation, basically, that's 10 minutes long. I actually did my junior year, the piece that I won with was called Hua, and it was about taking risks. The other one that I did was about comedy, actually. It was about the, the benefits of humor. Then they have humorous interpretation where you, my, my senior year I did a piece where it was, I cut the 10, a 10 minute version of The Wizard of Oz and played all the characters okay. and, and did like my own insane version of it. Um, but it was, it was one of those incredible programs that for kids who weren't athletes um, gave us the opportunity to find uh, a competitive outlet that allowed us to utilize the skill sets that we had. In my case, speaking, public speaking was right. amazing. And, and it, through interpretation, through dramatic, humorous interpretation, I was able to get my fix in terms of performance. Well, when you decided to do that program, to me, and even your speech about risk, it struck me because there you are and you're up on stage in front of massive amounts of people and you're pretty yeah. young, and that's a pretty scary thing. A lot of people, I think, would would shy away from that idea of going up and taking public speaking on as a... Oh, yeah. I, the, the truth is, is I, to this day, 
I still get nervous anytime I have to do public speaking. You do? Oh yeah. But I remember thinking from an early age, the end justifies the means. Like I remember being like nauseous to the point that I thought I was going to throw up before I had to get up and perform. Really? But I remember once I got up, that feeling of adrenaline and that euphoria when you hear an audience laughing or you hear them clapping right. gives you the strength that you need. Like doing a Broadway show, of which I've done two over the course of two and a half years, eight shows a week, is a slog. You don't do that unless you're a psychopath. Because <laughs> right, you're, yeah. you're, you feel like you are going to lose your mind. So what gets you through it is again, it's that hit, that that like adrenaline rush of an audience that is willing to go on this journey with you and share this roller coaster of emotion. Well, the other thing I was curious about is is the both speeches that you gave came off pretty close a pretty close cousin to stand up. Yes, it is a close cousin to stand-up, or at least the versions that I did of oratory were close right. to stand-up. And, and, Why and, have and I you're not writing done stand-up? Well, that's the question. That did, you the question. Ever, did you ever consider that as a career? Like, when I saw that, yes. I was like, wow, Josh, Josh, is this speech or is it stand-up? I'll like, tell you why I never did it. I was, so I was going to do... Um, I was going to do a Sam Kinison biopic a couple of years back, and I was actually, as I was prepping for the character, I was going to go... Uh, do some stand-up across town. Right. And I've done it. I've done it twice. And the truth is, is I hate it. And I'll tell you why I hate it. I find it lonely. I, I don't... I like reacting as much as I like acting. Okay. And being on a stage, I think people who do stand-up are fucking incredible, and I love stand-up. But I don't find that I'm good at it because I don't necessarily feel like it's as exciting for me comedically to be up there going on about my perceptions on life as it is for me to be with somebody else and improvising or, you know, having a banter back and forth. That right. is more exciting to me. So you were focused on Broadway the whole time? I was time, focused or? On, on acting. Like, I, I, I was focused on... No. No. That is not true. My biggest obsession, my biggest dream, was to be on Saturday Night Live. Oh, it was? That was my end game. I, I don't know how in my feeble brain um, thought that going to a conservatory that primarily... Um, that primarily specializes in Shakespeare and classical plays was going to get me on Saturday Night Live. I don't know where the synapses missed at the time in my head, but for whatever reason, I had this plan. I was going to go to Carnegie Mellon. I was going to get out, and I was going to somehow magically get on SNL. And I, when I graduated, I did a tape and I sent it in. And was it the classic, like, three impersonations? Yes. Okay. So I did a Phil Hoffman impression. I did a Rush Limbaugh impression. I did a Jeff Goldblum impression. And Which then, one was the strongest? I, I, I really like my Limbaugh. I really like my Philip Seymour Hoffman. Sadly, oh, yeah? there's not much use for it anymore, but it's heartbreaking. But, um, you know, my, for my Phil Hoffman, I, I did this thing where I I went into it and he was he was doing a monologue as Truman Capote uh, but instead he was doing dialogue for Mission Impossible 3 so he was there there's that great monologue it was meta it was very meta so he's like you, you have a wife Ethan or girlfriend I'm gonna hurt her I want to hurt you in front of her. And then instead, he's like, you know, this, this isn't working for me. I want, I want to try it again, different. You have a wife, Ethan, or a girlfriend. I want to hurt her. And I just went into straight Truman Capote doing Mission Impossible Three, and it just—it was—it was. This is insane video. 
And, and I, when you made this, are you thinking like, I'm in? No, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I just want to get in the door. Yeah. I just want to audition for right? Morn. Three years of sending in videos, nada. Zilch. Really? And I you never even got never to got audition. an audition. Never got an audition. And I was really just lost because I had this is one plan and it did not come to fruition. And I was going to quit acting, actually. And I was just like, I'd done like an episode of ER and like a couple of little things, but I just was like, this isn't working. So you were lost. So I was lost. I I graduated 03. Okay. So this is like 03, 04, going into 05. Wait, sorry, take me back a minute. So when you're... When you're post-college and you're trying to get work, yeah. are you just going on auditions and just not getting them and sort of having yeah. to sit there? And, and it, was, it was also just like crazy because my agents at the time, with one exception, this woman, Hannah Roth, um, were fucking terrible. They, they sent me to an audition once where I was, I get there and I look down to, to the, the role that I'm going to play and I look over to the other person that's auditioning for it, and it's Nick Lachey. And I'm like, have my agents looked at my headshot? Do they know <laughs> what I look at? What's happening? So I was just miserable. And so I call up my mom, say, I'm going to go to law school. Both my brothers went to law school, but both of them got their degrees. And I'm thinking my Jewish mother's going to be thrilled. She starts crying. She says, I'm so disappointed in you. You spent 15 years dreaming of doing this and only less than three years trying to live out that dream. Shame on you. It's like, God, you bitch. (laughs) You awful bitch. Um, But it was true. And about a week later, I got a call. For, For the better part of six months, I kept getting these calls from friends who were going down to New York City and they were going to see a show on Broadway called the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. They all kept calling me, and the message was the same. There's this show. There's this lead character. His name is William Barfay. There's this brilliant actor, Dan Fogler, who's playing him. He just won a Tony for playing this role. Josh, you have to go in for this the second he leaves, because you are the only human being on Earth who can play this role. I was like, oh, wow. So I had been trying to be seen for it. A couple of months before this all happens, I get a call that they want to see me. And in LA, I go in, I audition, it goes great. I audition again, uh, this time for the assistant director. And it goes amazing. I get a call and they say, I want you to do it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to be on Broadway? And they go, no, it's for the San Francisco tour. I had no backup. I had no anything. I turned it down. You did. <laughs> like a psycho. And they're apparently pissed at me. But I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know the balls that I had to do this. But I was like, um. Did you think if I turn it down, maybe they'll offer me? Yes, know? you did. And instead they were like, Fuck you, you're not welcome. You're persona non grata. And I was like, hey, wait, I'll do San Francisco. And then a couple months go by, I hear that Dan is leaving. How would you fill your time when you weren't working enough and what would kind of happen? Like, what would the self-critics start doing in your head? You're not good enough, you're shitty. I would go to, I'll tell you what I would do. I would waste away the hours at Barnes & Noble. Back when Barnes & Noble actually had like seats where you could sit and read, and I would just kill the time by reading. And could you do that without the anxiety or the or the? Oh, it would all saying, just be in the back. It would all be in the back of my head. But I'd read plays. I'd read books. I would, I would really just try to distract myself. But I was obsessed with like, what am I going to do? But I knew that they were auditioning for Barfay on Broadway, and my team had called them up and said, Josh is going to be in New York for this role. He would love a chance to audition for Broadway. They said, screw you. He had his chance. No. I'm on my way back home 
As I'm at the airport, I get a call. Casting director wants to know if you're still going to be in New York this week. I'm like, why? Because they'll see you. I said, yeah, I'm in New York. Get some sleep, wake up the next morning, go in an audition. First is the dance audition. I'm a terrible dancer. It's a disaster. Next is the um, scene audition. Goes great. And the singing audition goes fine. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, and I get a call back, do it all again, feeling good. Then I get a final call back. And that's what you always want. You want the final call back. Right. So, so now it's between you and one other person. One other probably. person. Okay. So they say, come to Circle in the Square. Nick Lachey. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Strange. So I show up at Circle in the Square Theater, and there's one other guy, and his credits are all Broadway. Okay. And I have no credits. So he's out there and it's like 10 minutes 20 minutes 25 minutes I'm like oh god and can you kind of hear it yeah and you I hear, hear the, like laughing, the laughter yeah. and I hear it all and I'm like Ugh. so he comes out and he's looking confident I go out it's not only the director it's the director and like 15 producers uh it, it, co-directors it's like all these people so I walk out I can make a joke to break the ice and I go up and I do the scene and four and a half minutes into it the director says stop and like okay and he goes can I see you for a second calls me up to the top of theater and he says I don't think you take this seriously I go excuse me I don't think you take this seriously. I don't think you actually really take any of this seriously. And I go, why are you saying that? And he goes, because you're coming out here, you're telling a joke, you're not, you know. And I go, please forgive me. Fifteen people are about to make the most important decision of my life. I'm walking out more nervous than I've ever been in my entire life. I figure I have two choices. I can either break the ace and make a joke, or I can projectile vomit over you and your colleagues. <laughs> so forgive me if I chose the former. This goes on and he basically starts to just question whether or not I have what it takes to, to do this. And I go, you know, you can question anything you want about me, but I will not let you question my work ethic. I have done nothing but devote myself to my craft for four years. I've done nothing but fight to be here. If I don't get this role on my merits, fine. But I fucking love what I do and I take it very seriously. And I got up, walked out, went backstage, looked at the guy, the other guy, and I said, congratulations, you got the role. Went home to the hotel, started packing, get a phone call from my agent, and she says, you have two tickets to see Spelling Bee tonight. And I go, why the fuck would I want to see that show? And she says, because the director thinks you should probably take a look at it before you start in two weeks. Really? That was it. So that was the big break. So that was the big break. That was the moment for you. Yeah. Had you let your Saturday Night Live dream die at that point? At that point, I think I I forgot about it. It wouldn't come up again for another two years I when I left uh, Spelling Bee I did I started up with the Groundlings did about two years and realized I hate this um, I just thought it was too corporate and, and at that point it just was like I was like I don't and then you got the Daily Show right and then I got the Daily Show and did that sort of you know because it's funny I, I was looking at uh, when you did Angry Birds that cast is almost entirely post SNL actors. Sudeikis, Sudeikis, Hader. Bill Hader, uh, Maya, Maya Rudolph. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And they're all friends. I, I love them all. But does it ever feel like a box you never got to check, or, or like totally? But I, I was. It's funny because I got the call to audition for SNL when I got the Daily Show. I got the call and I was like, no, thank you. But the Daily Show 
kind of checked the box for me. Right. You know, if I have one regret about The Daily Show, it's that Book of Mormon started so soon after The Daily Show that I never really got to do what I wanted to do. But that was a, an insane story because I auditioned for it and John flipped and said, you start on Monday, come to New York, we're gonna pay you X amount of money. I tell my wife what they're gonna pay me and she's like, oh, we can't move to New York on that. And I'm like, we can't, can't we? She's like, no. And I go, yeah. So you're in LA at this point. I'm in LA. Okay. And I call them up and I say, I am so sorry. This is probably gonna be the most heartbreaking decision I ever have to make, but I'm gonna have to turn you guys down. I can't do it. John, who I fucking live for, and I think is one of the greatest geniuses of all time, has the graciousness to say to me, no worries, we'll make you a roving correspondent, come in like Larry Wilmore, and you'll do whenever you can. Would really? that work for you? And I go, that would 100% be amazing. I will sign up today. And then within six months, Mormon basically starts to happen. Right. And so, so then I, I tell John, so good news, bad news. Good news is, is finally moving to New York. Bad news is to do a Broadway show. But I'm so proud of the pieces that I got to do while I was there. And and it did. It it, it checked the box for me of, of the SNL itch. It really yeah. did. Hey, folks, let's take a little break from the conversation and talk about one of our sponsors this week, Native. Native makes safe, simple, effective products that people use in the bathroom every day. They create products with trusted ingredients and trusted performance. And they have 9,000 five-star reviews. And one of them is me, because a few months back, Native sent me a bar of their cucumber and mint deodorant. And I tried it, and I immediately loved it and ditched my old deodorant. And that's not just me saying this, because they're paying us to have their ad on the air. I've been wearing the same deodorant since I was a kid, and it was my dad's deodorant, and... It was just sort of, you know, what I knew. And when I tried theirs, I liked the smell better. I liked the feel better. I liked the fact that there's no aluminum, parabens, and talc in it. And it's filled with ingredients found in nature, such as coconut oil, shea butter, and tapioca starch. Apparently, the tapioca starch absorbs wetness. And they never test on animals. So I just fell in love with this deodorant. And I love the smell. I'm a big cucumber and mint person. I eat cucumber and mint. I put it on my body. I like it. And the main point is, it works. Making the switch to aluminum-free deodorant does not mean having to sacrifice on product performance. And they have a wide variety of scents. In fact, I'm going to try coconut and vanilla next, two of my other favorite scents that remind me of being on a Hawaiian vacation. They also have lavender and rose and eucalyptus and mint. And there's no risk to try because they offer free returns and exchanges in the United States. So try this new deodorant. Try going native. Tell me what you think about it. Send me an email. I think it's great stuff, and I wear it every day. And the office is very happy about how nice I smell. And because I love Native so much and because they've been so kind to us, they're also going to be kind to you. They're giving a special offer to our listeners. They'll give you 20% off your first purchase just by visiting nativedeodorant.com and using the promo code OFFCAMERA during checkout. That's 20% off the first purchase using the promo code OFFCAMERA during checkout. So go native, and my prediction is you'll never go back. Now back to the show. God, it, it seems crazy, this conflict that was sort of happening as success happened for you, that all of a sudden you're on The Daily Show, and you get this Broadway show that you have no idea because you originated the role, so you have no idea if it's going to be big or not. So when that starts happening, do you have a plan at that point? Or are you like, there's no way I can have a plan because... You know what I mean? I, I would feel like it'd be such a funny crossroads to be at. No, I, I knew I had to do it. I was of two minds. I had been workshopping the show um, with Trey and Matt and uh, a core group of creatives. And, and weren't the same songwriters, the Lopez's on and Bob, Book of Mormon? Well, Bobby. 
Yeah, Bobby, Bobby Lopez did. was. Okay. So Bobby Lopez was doing it. And it, who did Frozen. Yes. And, um, and from the very beginning, I was the only person who ever uh, played Elder Cunningham. And for, for two and a half years, we would fly into New York. We would do a workshop of it, get out the kinks, and continue to like build it and then come back. And People probably don't understand how much... Work. Work goes into a Broadway show, not just in writing it and putting it up, but you workshop it and you take it back, and it's you years. You gotta get investors, years, right? it's, it's years. And three years in, we finally are told the plan, which is originally we were gonna go off Broadway, do a run, then transfer or out of town, which is traditionally what happens. Scott Rudin, our producer, says, we're going straight to Broadway. I believe in this enough. We're gonna take it straight to Broadway and let's go. Be ready to go. It's going to start March 2010. I said, oh, great. My wife is pregnant with our first daughter. She's due December. So I'm going to have to move to New York in 30 days later. That's great because January is when rehearsals are going to start. So I'm like, oh, boy. So what I thought was... I knew I had to do it. I turned down, they, you know, I had done, my, my first show was a show called Back to You, my first television series with Chris uh, Lloyd and Steve Levitan who created Modern Family. Right. So they bring me this script and Jesse Tyler Ferguson, my co-star in Spelling Bee is in it. He's attached to be in, in um, Modern Family and they say, you know, we, we're, we'd love if you came in and you read for Cameron. Uh, his partner. And I said, sure. And I, ca- I came in and it went great. And they were like, we think that this could be really special. Uh, we'd love for you to sign a test deal and, and uh, come in and, and test for the studio for this. And I said, I can't do it. I, I, I'm, I would love to, but I, I have to do this show. And they were like, are you out of your mind? I'm like, ah. To this day, my wife does not forgive me. She's like, do you understand how fucking rich we would be if you had done Modern Family? But what? A, but that's the thing people don't see is, is how hard it is to make these choices when opportunity comes along, and you have to pick a direction. You have to pick a direction, and it is in the blink of an eye. Sometimes you do. You make a great decision. Sometimes you don't. In this case, I think I made the best decision for me. But I'm thinking, like, who's going to see this show? Right, like it could go in two months. Like then, South Park fans are going to love it. Right. But are theater patrons, like blue-haired theater patrons, going to come and see a show in which we sing Fuck You God in the ass mouth and cunt? Like, what is going to happen when this show comes out? I'm thinking, like, somebody's going to fucking shoot me. Thank you for recommending it to my daughter, by the way. Yeah, I well, appreciate that. I said when you're older. <laughs> but I, I, I was genuinely... Not expecting much. Right. So you can imagine my surprise when, after our very first preview, suddenly the next day, I see a line of 40 people outside trying to get tickets. And then the next day, and I see 200 people outside lining up. And then by the end of that first week, I see 1,000 people trying to get tickets. And I didn't under I, I didn't understand what was happening. What is putting up eight shows a week at that level of scrutiny and that level of hype and excitement and cultural shift? What does that teach you that years of TV and film couldn't have? You know what I mean? Like that that idea that that you have to go out there every night and do this. You act on TV and film. You become an actor on stage. Tell me the difference. You know. There is nothing to hide behind when you are in front of an audience of 1,200 people and they've all paid exorbitant amounts of money to watch you perform. You don't get a retake. (laughs) You don't get a chance to be like, can we go again? Yeah. You don't get a chance to go back to your cush trailer and run through it and relax. You are on for two and a half hours and if anything goes wrong, something goes wrong. You got to deal with it. What was the worst thing that ever went oh, wrong? Oh, God. There was a day where I was 
they, there's a song called You're Making Things Up Again, Arnold, that begins act two. It's right before I just told a lie. Oh no, I just exaggerated. And it's this like moment that is launching into the song. There was somebody in the audience who was pissing me off so much. Somebody from Entourage. I'm not gonna name names. I was really distracted. And that's on me. Like I I should have known better. But I, I kept thinking in my head, I wanna call him out. I wanna fucking call him out. I wanna I wanna make a comment. I wanna make a comment. And I'm having that internal conversation and suddenly I hear the cue to the song and it was like an out of body experience. And I go, and I don't say anything. I didn't forget my cue. I forgot the English fucking language. I did froze. Not only froze, I like got like tinnitus where like all I heard was And I see the, the guy in the pit, the guy running the orchestra conducting, look at me, and he says the line. He, get, he feeds me the cue because the audience and I have been staring silently at each other for at least a minute at this point. Oh, God. Then the stage manager shouts the cue. I hear neither of them. Really? I then look at my co-star, Asmarat Gabriel McKell, and I say, on stage, in front of these people, this is a person who's trained in improv, who understands the art of bullshit, and I look at her, and the only words that come out of my mouth are, what the fuck am I supposed to say? In front of an audience of 1,200 people who could not be more confused right now. Here's the kicker. Her character, who's an African, absolutely is the worst person to tell me my next line because she's not supposed to know because the lesson I'm about to teach her is in that line. And so I force her to awkwardly tell me a line I have been told now three times and couldn't hear. That's not only the worst night that I had during Book of Mormon, that is the worst night of my life. It was horrible. Oh my God. How did, how did you get out of it? Like, did it go back into gear when you heard the line? I, it went back into gear, but it, I never recovered. And so from that point on, I had stage management tape the page into the Book of Mormon, because in the scene I have the actual book, and I always <laughs> had it there from then on out because I was so terrified. Because it was like a glitch in your brain. It was a glitch something. in my brain. The second you go up, that you psych yourself out. Right, and for people who out. are watching who don't understand, going up is forgetting your lines on stage. Correct. And I would think it would rock your entire foundation of how you think you know your brain works and what you can trust about oh, yourself. Man. The same thing happened to me on uh, Spelling Bee. I think that there comes a point, like seven months in, where your mind starts to really wander because you're doing the same thing every day, day in and out. And you just start to psych yourself out. Right. The spelling bee was terrible because I forgot how to spell the word that won the entire <laughs> tournament. Really? Yes. It was a nightmare. That, that'll kind of mess up the plot of the play a little bit, right? Yeah, I think. Yeah, that was a disaster. When the curtain went down on that terrible night, what was the reaction from the cast and everything? Laughing so hard. I mean, on the floor. On the floor. I, I don't know who laughed more during Book of Mormon, everyone in the audience or the cast on stage, because we would just make each other laugh. There was a whole other show happening on that stage that nobody even knew about. When you went back the next day, were you worried it was gonna happen again? Completely. I was mortified. Oh my God. I laughed about it, but deep down inside I was so embarrassed and I was so mortified. Wow. Well, listen, I, I, I want to jump forward to uh, the comedians. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a fan of that show and a fan of the premise and the idea. I, I like the idea of, of mockumentaries and, and exploring the meta levels. And this was a show that you were on with Billy Crystal on FX. Yeah. And it was basically a, a fake documentary about a fake sketch show called Josh and Billy, and so you guys played yourselves. 
And I thought, what an interesting experiment for you to come in and have to sort of develop a persona that at the same time you're introducing yourself to a lot of audiences and you're playing yourself. And when I was reading about that, something stuck out to me, which was you said it was the most terrifying thing you'd ever done up to that point. And I just was curious about how you wrapped your head around playing yourself and the potential pitfalls that you were worried about going in and, and how you sort of got through that experience. Yeah, it, you know, I call the comedians the one that got away because it was... Well, it only went one season, right? It only went one season and it was truly... It, it was one of those things where everybody says stick with it, it gets better. But it really was the example of oh, stick with it, you, do, you don't know what we're doing. Yeah. And it was funny because it's the only thing I've ever really done where reviewers went back and amended their reviews and said we were wrong. Because we got shit on. Everybody was like, oh, it's, I've seen this, I've seen the comeback, I've seen. But everybody was missing the point with that show, which was, it wasn't a behind the scenes exploration of like backstage comedy. It was an exploration of a generational disconnect between two guys who both want the same thing at really different points in their lives. Right. One who's past his prime, one who's entering his prime. And the show was such an achievement and it breaks my heart that we only got to explore it for one short season. But the thing that I was terrified about was I, my persona is one that I, I'd like to think um, people look at with a, a positive spin, right? That, yeah. that I'm, I, I'm not known for to be like tabloid drama. I, I don't, I live a, kind of a boring existence where I stay out of, you know, my own way. But the version of myself that I was portraying on that show was a complete fuck up. The right. guy was, you know, just pothead and just a, a absolutely like always putting his foot in his mouth and and doing shit that was just like, why are you doing this? And and Billy was placing playing it closer to Billy. And in that yeah, Billy was straight man in that. For Billy sure. was kind of straight man, and yeah. so in that sense, I was very concerned that like people are going to think that like this is me but it was such a blast at the same time because I, I really got to skewer all of the the things that I think people perceive me to be do you notice by playing a heightened or exaggerated version of yourself that you find that the, that personality can be a bit nebulous or that we can shape shift a little more than than we maybe think we can yeah I mean uh, what I love about it is it allows you to confront alternate versions of your own life. Like what what might have been had I made these choices instead of these choices. Right. And so it's fun to play, you know, a version of yourself that may have been. You know, I haven't always been the perfect person. I've made mistakes along the way. And I think, you know, you, you have um, these divergent roads that you can pick at certain junctures that will lead you down one path or the other. My life could have been very different had I made some of those decisions. Had I decided to be on Modern Family, we'd be having a very different conversation today. Right. Well, I think when you examine your own life that way, you can get a sense more of how much you are or not, or are not in control of, of the choices you make. You know what I mean? I, I think that part is, that part's weird. And especially, playing across from Billy Crystal, who's also sort of doing his version of that. Who's also an idol of mine. Who's an idol of yours. Yeah. Did it take a while for you to find your footing across from Billy Crystal after admiring him or feeling like you belonged? I am so in love with Billy. I think he is an absolute genius. I'm as intimidated of him today as I was the first day I met him. In fact, there's a line in I, I think the second episode of the show where we're stoned out of our minds and we're eating ice cream together. Yes, in, in, the, in the supermarket. Yeah. In the supermarket and, and, and I just look at him and I'm eating ice cream and I'm like, you intimidate me. And that is the, that is the essence of our relationship. 
I live for him, but he intimidates the bejesus out of me. You know, what's funny is the way that line came off in that episode was that the very nature of saying that makes it go away because he, he responds with such friendship and so, like I forget what his response is it's something like I know yeah <laughs> <And it's> like, <laughs> yeah but I, I think that, that to be able to to do that and be able to say that that's what we all want as human yeah. beings is the freedom to be able to say yeah here's exactly how I feel and I'm here anyway and it's okay yes did that happen on the show as well a hundred percent and along the way I think the the most fulfilling aspect to me has been living that wish fulfillment version of the reality you dream about as a kid. I'll, I'll finish up with this, which is I, the other night my best friend and I went to the, the premiere of The Irishman. And at this point in my career, I, I often take things for granted. I, I look at them as, you know, uh, I gotta go dress up, I gotta go, I have to go out tonight and do this thing. and Because right, we're dads and we're tired. So yeah, and it's like a thing. I, I don't want to do it. But I, I call my friend up and I go, I remember watching Goodfellas as kids. You and me in my house on video, getting it out of Blockbuster, and being like, man, how cool would it be to be a part of something like that? These are our idols. And you go, and I'm there in the presence of Martin Scorsese, of De Niro, of Pacino, of Pesci, of Keitel, of titans of my industry. And I look at him and I'm like, we did it. We did it. And I think that that is the thing that never ceases to amaze me, is that I am so blessed enough to, to just have a seat at the table. I know that the opportunity I've been given is, is not one to waste. Yeah, well, your career is fascinating because I can't say with any certainty based on what you've done so far <laughs> what you're gonna do next. Yeah. And you've entertained me on very adult levels like Book of Mormon, the comedians, and you entertain my children on very childish Thank levels you. that really annoy me. So yeah. I uh, touche. I think that I think that what you do is fascinating. Your talent is incredible and I really look forward to what you do in the future. Thank you so thanks much. Thanks for thanks for sharing. This was a blast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Hey folks, that's our show. I love talking to Josh. I love hearing about how he took his adversity and turned it into something that became his talent and his path to creative success. And you know, besides the things that he's really familiar with, like The Daily Show and Frozen and Beauty and the Beast, if you haven't seen The Comedians, which ran for one season on FX, I highly recommend you seek that out and stay with the series to the end because it was really good and I was really sorry to see it go. So check that out. Or you can head down to your local multiplex right now and hear him as the voice of Olaf in Frozen 2, which I'm sure will be running for many, many months because I'm sure it'll be a runaway success. Speaking of runaway successes, have you been to the off-camera website lately? If you haven't, I highly recommend you check us out because beyond this podcast, off-camera is a whole ecosystem of entertainment for your ears and eyes and brain. Basically, we are a television show, a podcast, and a magazine. So if you haven't subscribed to this podcast yet, take a minute and do it so you never miss another episode delivered directly to your feed. Also, when you're there, leave us a rating and a review so that other people can find us. And if you haven't yet seen us on television, you can tune in every week to DirecTV's Audience Network, Channel 239. We air multiple times a week with first-run shows on Mondays and Wednesday nights. And if you don't have DirecTV, you can also find us through our television subscription service, through offcamera.com. For $4.99 a month, you can have access to over 200 episodes to watch on any device you like, as many times as you like. It's a great way to support the show and to take a deep dive into what we're doing here in Off Camera. So if you haven't checked all that out, please do. You can also find us on social media. 
We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones at Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. And if you go to our Instagram site, you can see a lot of behind-the-scenes photos and portraits of all the guests that we've had on the show. For instance, if you go there right now, you can see the behind-the-scenes pictures of how we made Josh Gad look like he was standing in the middle of a snowstorm. And you'll see it was courtesy our fantastic editor, Nathan Shields, and our graphic designer, Michaela Galvin, who double as special effects snow creators. Well, you'll have to check out the Instagram to see the whole story. But anyway, subscribe to that. And you know, social media is also a great way to give us guest suggestions, ask for advice, or to just tell people about the show. So take a minute, if you love what we're doing, and tell your friends. You can also send me an email. I'm sam at offcamera.com. And I love hearing what listeners are doing. And yes, I'm always up to give some bad advice or just listening to whatever's on your mind. But honestly, I feel so lucky to be able to do this show and to be a part of a creative community that shares in these stories. So I appreciate anyone who takes the time to write in. I want to thank everybody that works on the show each week. Nathan Shields, Crawford Shippey, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, Kara Johnson. Couldn't do the show without those fine folks. And we are hard at work as you hear this on the next episode. So stay with us each week. We'll keep making the show and we'll see you next time off camera.